Good morning. This is Tom Clark with the Father's Heart and Papa Tom from Papa Tom's Tales, connecting the hearts of the fathers with the children and connecting the hearts of children to fathers. I have with me today my dear friend Dave Henderson, and we are going to be discussing the five stones of David and how they relate to teaching because we have gained an understanding that the father's heart that he gives to people, whether they be men or women, it's still his heart, is to protect, to provide, and to teach. So today we're gonna to focus on teaching and the aspect of teaching and how that comes across in an unusual way that Dave's gonna to reveal to us prophetically, as well as the correlation between the five stones of David and the fivefold ministry. I'm sure you'll enjoy our podcast as we're going to cover ground that we might not even know we're going to cover. <laughs> um, and uh, I want to also recommend a really good book for those people who are pressing into having a deeper intimacy with God the Father. And that's a book by an author. This book was given to me by my, my son Isaac. And uh, he shared it with me because it touched his heart. It was written by a former Franciscan priest who, who left the Catholic order of Franciscans. And uh, his name was Brennan Manning. And the name of the book is Abba's Child. We always realize that Abba is the Hebrew word for daddy. So it's Abba's Child, the cry of the heart for intimate belonging. And with that, I want to uh, turn the conversation over to David. David, share with me and our audience what the Lord has been revealing to you about the five stones of David. I was um, looking at some scripture here lately, and I was reminded of David, who was the eighth son of Jesse, which is an interesting thing because there's certain significance to the number eight for new beginnings. You know, the, the number eight is the number of new beginnings in the scripture. And David is called the eighth son of Jesse. Noah is called Noah the eighth. It's very specifically because they're types of Christ, right? Types of uh, Jesus being manifest. And so David goes down to bring some food to his brothers that were lined up in a battle against the Philistines and especially against the great Philistine hero as far as they're concerned. And unfortunately, at the same time, you have this battle set up. You have Saul, who's the biggest guy in Israel. And he's cowering up in his uh, tent, afraid to go down and meet the Philistine challenge. Because the Philistines have said this, which we'd all like to see happen among world leaders. Okay, forget about the war and killing off all these guys here. Let's just send your biggest guy against our biggest guy. But Saul so, was six foot and Goliath yeah. was nine foot. <laughs> yeah, so Saul's sitting there as a coward up in his tent. And along comes this little shepherd boy. And uh, he's going to come along and he's going to go down there. And he's going to... Uh, see what's going on by giving his brothers this stuff. He wasn't even allowed to go to the battlefield uh, at his age because he was too young to fight. So he sees that this giant is standing down in the, in the center of this, uh, this valley, yelling every day, you know, cursing God, doing all this stuff. And he goes to Saul and he says to Saul, he goes, why, you know, why are you guys not doing anything about this guy cursing the name of God, this uncircumcised Philistine, as he called him. And to see people, which are the Philistines, they're kind of a famous people at the end of the Bronze Age that had done great amount of raids, damages, and everything. The Philistines are like the last end of that group of people. Mighty warriors. Even the Egyptians wrote about how horrendously 
bad they were. But here they got their guy, this giant of a man. David's going to, you know, they, so Saul says, here, try on my armor. <laughs> Gives David this armor. David, you know, of course, it's Saul's armor. He's a giant guy. David's a little guy. Doesn't fit. Said, okay, forget about it. David's thinking in the back of his mind. He says, I got a sling. He didn't even have the rocks on. He said, I got a sling. And he's saying to himself, I took this sling. I killed this lion. I took this sling. I fought for these sheep. That's all he was fighting for, which is a good picture. He's fighting for the sheep, right? So a lot, for a lot of years, for the most part of modern history, this story was doubted based on the idea that they didn't believe that slinging was a valued aspect of fighting war. And part of that is based on the idea of what was called the school of higher criticism, which just said the whole Bible was a lie. But they didn't believe that there was such a thing as slingers that could do this kind of stuff until Scientific Americana about 45 years ago uh, wrote a series of articles about slingers that they met in the Middle East presently. So, and then they started studying the, the uh, writings of Herodotus and different people and saw that the armies were using slingers as the, some of the most powerful uh, warriors. But David was kind of the cheap version of Slinger because he didn't have what they had access to, which was little lead, pieces of lead that they had smelted to use like a bullet. So David goes out there to the Book of Kidron, which is symbolic of God's work, you know, going through this, this valley. He's going down into the middle of the valley, down to the Book of Kidron, and he reaches down into the river. And in my mind, what I'm seeing is he's going to take these stones and he's going to put them in his pouch. So he reaches down into the river and he picks up the first stone. And the scripture says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And so he reaches down in the first stone. There's the apostle. He reaches down into the second stone. That's the, the prophet. Reaches down in the third stone. That's the evangelist. Reaches down in the fourth stone. That's the pastor. Then he reaches down in the fifth stone, stacks that on top, and that's the teacher. Well, the, the teaching stone is what, I'm, what I'm, ex, I'm explaining about here. The teaching stone is that last stone because David reached back down into his pouch and picked up the, the stone that was stacked on the other stones and slung that at Goliath. And that's a picture of the ministry that God uses to defeat the mind of the enemy that's ruling in society. We have got to sling right between the eyes. Yeah, right between the eyes, which is symbolic of the mind, right? right? Goliath is standing there. He gets hit between the eyes. It's symbolic of his mind, of the of mind. And that's where the warfare is. It says to cast down every imagination and where imagination is reasoning. So our job is to teach the gospel. And Jesus said that very specifically. He said to go out. He said converting the nations, uh, preaching the gospel to every living creature teaching them the things that I've taught you. So we hear from God, and, and here's the unique thing. The reason our teaching has had no power is because it's not based on what God's taught us. We're going by somebody else's teaching. We're going by what somebody said that somebody said. But when we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself, primary source information, primary source information direct download from God, then our words have power. And that was the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus' words. Jesus had direct download from God. He's speaking the word of God very clearly as somebody who knew the truth of it and believed it 
and taught it. And the Pharisees are just rotely teaching what was passed down to them and passed down to them, which was nothing wrong until the day when Jesus came. Well, Jesus said to them, he says, <laughs> do what they say, not what they do. Yeah. So on the day when Jesus came, everything changed. Everything changed. It's based on that relation. So our job in the world today is to take the gospel and teach the gospel there to a, every living creature. There was a place in scripture where the people say, uh, he, he teaches in power. Yes, they said that because there's other teachers that they've been used to would teach like the Pharisees, but they had no power. He's the one that backed up the, his teaching with miracles. Exactly. So, so they, they, under, they clearly understood the difference between the transfer of teaching that had power in it and the transfer of teaching that was almost in a sense hearsay or was passed on from generation to generation to generation, but there was no power behind it. We, we've kind of gone in two directions. One, there's been this philosophy of saying, uh, preach the gospel if you have to use words. And what they mean by that is don't ever say anything, just live it. And I've, I've been out there on the streets and they say, oh, that's a nice guy. But they don't know why I'm being nice. <laughs> they don't understand what's motivating me if I don't tell them. And then we've had the opposite where people haven't had any fruit in their life and they just hounded people, banged on them, you know, slammed them over the head with everything they could come up with, but they don't have the fruit to back it up. However, the scripture says the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It, the, the dunamis of God, the lightning power, the zoe of God, the, the, the energetic force of God comes by the word of God that's believed on and that's experienced personally. You, when we're called to be uh, witnesses, the scripture uses the word in the Greek, martyrs, basically is what the word means. And that means you're willing to sacrifice yourself for what you know is the truth. And, and that's, that's a unique experience I had with my wife before she died. And I remember sitting on our, our front porch about a month before she died, and we had just gone through a barrage of people coming to us and saying to us, you've got to tell God, you've got to make God listen to you. Like God was not, like God wasn't caring. Like he was somehow, or he wasn't some, listening. like he wasn't ever listening. And, and you got to make him do this or you're not going to be healed. And, and she just turned to me one day sitting out in, in, on that front porch about a month before she died of the cancer. And she goes, I can't even hear that. She said, I, she, and this was to me was her greatest moment in her entire life that I, of the 20 years I was married. This was her shining moment. When she said, how can I speak to him like that who did so much for me? And a lot of people argue, say, well, she died because she didn't have faith, all this kind of nonsense. She knew Jesus Christ and she could not transgress, even if her own life depended on it. She couldn't transgress that thing. And that's exactly the spirit that was coming against her was the same thing that was coming against Job. When they were telling Job, his wife was saying, curse God and die. Just go ahead and do it. And it's just do it. You just get rid of this stuff. And if you understand the truth of God, you understand the word of God being as it's taught by the Holy Spirit, because he is our teacher. He comes to teach us about Jesus Christ in his word. If you understand the word of God, then you understand 
that Jesus Christ is gracious to us, that he's ever been gracious to us, and we're going out into the world teaching the world the graciousness. That's what, that's what it says. God so loved the cosmos, the world, that he gave his own. Jesus is telling this to a religious guy who spent his whole life in the law, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is even coming there in daylight. He's sneaking to him at night. You know, got to get in here before anybody sees me. And Jesus is telling him the most profound thing that could ever be said in, in the entire existence in the universe. God loves you. And that's the foundation of the truth. And you see this uh, tremendous understanding people that walk with God and fellowship with Jesus Christ. There's no question in their mind they're not going to want to transgress. And, and the teaching stone, when I'm talking about slinging the teaching stone, we are facing a great manifestation of the darkness of Satan being spewed on the earth, just like the scripture talks about in Revelation, being spewed and birthed into the earth. But the thing that can defeat this in the minds of the individuals we meet is the truth of what God has showed us. And that's the calling of the ministries that he mentions in the scripture. And that's the calling of everybody in the church who wants to aspire towards leadership because it says that the church leaders are to be apt to teach, apt to teach. So every one of us has this sling with the teaching stone that we can teach somebody and strike at that force of darkness. Oftentimes we don't educate ourselves to learn how to do it, but we need to do it. I'm listening, I'm writing notes here as you're going, I'm waving my hands <laughs> to get your attention. Yeah. Um, first thing that came to my mind was we had a dear friend named Kathy who passed away about a month ago. And at her funeral, her dear friend of over 30 years named Pamela came to speak. And speaking as would normally be done, uh, her son spoke and her best friend spoke. Um, at the funeral, uh, Pamela said that she was praying for Kathy's healing. And, you know, pressing in onto the heart of God, uh, sitting in, seated, uh, in heavenly places, praying for the healing for Kathy. And then the Lord spoke to her and said, Pamela, would you want me to violate Kathy's free will just so I could honor your faith? Hmm. And then Pamela was taken aback, but she realized that Kathy wanted to go to heaven. And so the Lord was speaking to her, I appreciate your desire for her healing but it was her choice to come be with me. And I'm not gonna violate her free will just to honor your faith. And it's a whole completely different way of thinking things. That was one note I had. The second note I wrote down was, we will throw back to David for a second. You mentioned that it just triggered something in my mind. And you mentioned that David was the eighth son. I was always curious as to why, when Samuel the prophet was told by God, to go to Jesse and to anoint his son to be king of Israel, that Jesse brought in front of him seven different sons, and every one, because uh, Samuel looked at the outside, he said, oh, this, the firstborn son, surely it was him, and the second one, the third one, he went through all seven, and it all zero, 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 nothing, 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 and everyone looked like a king. So then Samuel says to Jesse, are, are you sure there's nobody else? And I always ask the question is, 
why didn't Jesse bring David up, you know, to, to begin with? And he said, well, yeah, I hate to say it, you know, but there's a, there's a run to the litter. There's a guy, you know, there's a kid, there is a son, if you want to call him that, you know, dealing with sheep. And then somebody talked to me one time and said, would it be possible that David was illegitimate? And that um, Jesse actually didn't consider him to be a full son because he was either a stepson or, or, or either stepson or illegitimate. It was not part of the regular eight sons in the family. He wasn't considered the same level as the other seven sons. So why? And I thought it, it's very highly possible that he was illegitimate. And then if you read one of the Psalms where he talks about that, or it makes an inference to it, being in his mother's womb, um, I forget the address of it right now, there's an indication they may be admitting to that. So that being said, when you consider the point that you said he's a type of Christ, the Pharisees try to put on Jesus in John 9 that when they talk about their fathers, right, they asked him who his father was because they knew the story that Mary had uh, been conceived. I mean, Jesus had been conceived by Mary, right, before she was married to Joseph. You know, nine months before the nine months happened. So there had to be stories back in Nazareth about his birth that the Pharisees knew. No question. So they're thinking in their minds, Jesus is illegitimate. Of course, we know he wasn't, certainly not in God's eyes. But in the, in the eyes of natural man, he was illegitimate. And they tried, you know, I born out of wedlock. And they tried to put that on him to sort of like back him up a little bit. But he didn't back him up at all. Like obviously, you know, he proceeded knowing fully who he was. And uh, there's a similarity to that in potentially in David's life. He could have potentially been illegitimate, right? <coughs> and yet... It didn't stop David. Here's the point. Never stopped Jesus. Never stopped David from moving, right, in his calling and his anointing to um, uh, combat Goliath is the first one we see. But then all the other uh, exploits that David did, it never stopped him because he knew he was, because he had intimacy with God. And that's why God wanted to anoint him as king of Israel, one who is a man after his own heart. See the correlation there. The third note that I wrote down was uh, you mentioned about the slingers. And I wrote an, I read an interesting book by Malcolm Gladwell. I believe the title of it was David and Goliath. And he did a background study on David and Goliath. And they said, you know, uh, what we are normally told culturally in the stories is David was this big, you know, Goliath, and who could, you know, overcome, you know, this big monstrous uh, uh, warrior, right? And they said when they did the study of it, they found <coughs> that Goliath actually didn't have a chance against David because David, they found out the slingers could sling a stone at 200 miles an hour from 125 yards, right? And, and, and knock out a quarter, mm -hmm. you know, at that distance, right? I mean, they, they slingers even today were that good. So in terms of warfare, the weaponry that he had. First of all, big Goliath was slow. And he went to the scriptures to describe how slow he moved. Number two, he didn't have good eyesight. 
Yeah, because it's giantism. Because it's giantism, he couldn't have a good eyesight. Plus, he was slow, so he was moving slowly. And David was coming down from a high place, the higher ground, and he was running fast, right? So he's coming out fast. He's slinging a sling at 200 miles an hour, and he popped him right in the middle of the forehead, right, at 200 miles an hour from 100 yards away, right? So the guy was already knocked out. So, so he said, if you, if you go weaponry against weaponry, right, David actually had the advantage over a giant such as Rival. Um, uh, but here's the other point of that, which is the fourth point, and that is David was taught how to use the sling, mm -hmm. right? So everything that he did between picking up the smooth stones, I mean, he, he just didn't pick up any rocks. There was a particular thinking process in his mind on which stones to pick. So I love your analogy and the, the correlation between the five stones that David picked, which were selected purposely mm -hmm. for their size and shape uh, with the fivefold ministry. And how all the fivefold ministry are teaching ministries. I don't know if you went into that or not. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. Exactly. Yeah, right. And and his point was that he picked up uh, all five stones, all for a purpose. Goliath had four son, four brothers, the sons of Anak. Mm -hmm. So all five stones were designed to kill five the five uh, Goliath was his four brothers with the special stones. The last one being the teaching stone. And the idea of slinging the teaching stone all has corollaries to what David had been taught because he had killed the lion and the bear with the stones. He knew how to use that weaponry. He knew how to take down Goliath, right? He was taught that, right? And he actually went, like I said, right between the eyes, which the, the symbolism of that is attacking the mind. <coughs> and today... We need to learn what those teaching stones are to attack the mind, mm -hmm. because in America and throughout the world, the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, has used media to attack our minds and brainwash us. And the education and system. And use the education system as well. Everything he's used, Hollywood, the entertainment, the education system, uh, uh, to basically create delusions, brainwashes, dilutes. How do we go to fight brainwashing and delusion? We need the teaching stone. And who is supposed to be yielding the teaching stone in the culture and the society in which we live? And I'll proffer to you the reason why we're having this podcast mm -hmm. is because the fathers are supposed to be yielding the teaching stone. Yep. And they're supposed to be slinging that teaching stone. And they're supposed to teach their sons and daughters. And the enemy's attack against the fathers is to take the, the those who can wield the teaching stone properly are out of the families and out of the churches. You've got many teachers, few fathers. Where are the fathers in the churches? Where are the charges of the uh, fathers in the family? How has society been broken down because of the lack of fathers who can teach their children and the people that they've been taught to be fathers mm -hmm. with. I, fortunately, God's given me a number of young, not even that young men, but men who are, uh, I've been able to be father to, at least a handful of them. And they've approached me in different ways to 
in a spiritual sense, to be fathers. And my ability to teach them is only confined by what God imparts to me. As he's been able to impart it to me, I can impart to them first-hand information. That's but what it always is, first-hand information. Always first-hand. Not, you know, I know from Courts of War and stuff, but you're mm -hmm. very familiar with David. It's not hearsay. You can't really walk with God from hearsay. Even my own children cannot move forward in their life with the things that I teach them if they're hearing it third-hand. They have to have that own connection with God the Father. Hence the, the intention of the, the podcasts and the books. This is, is to encourage people to have their own firsthand relationship. So any teaching that you're slinging with the teaching stone brings people back to Abba, their dad, mm -hmm. and private intimacy with him. I, I have a good friend. He's well over 100 years old now. He's still ministering the gospel. Spent many years on the mission field. And he told me when I was young, he said, don't talk about anything that doesn't move you. And that's been kind of a, a good guidance in my life for doing outreach is if it doesn't move me, it's not going to move anybody else. Mm -hmm. And the only things that really move me are things that mean something to me from my experience with God or experience in life. And in, you know, David had a sling and we don't often think about those things because today's weaponry is so different. But built up on top of the concept of a sling going through history was another thing called a trebuchet. And that's basically a modified sling. And so sometimes you've got a sling that's throwing a piece of lead, which is what, uh, what the Belieric slingers that went with Hannibal's father, uh, Hamilcar's uh, Punic Wars against the Romans. They had hundreds of these guys who stood well behind the archers, well behind everybody, and just threw lead, little round lead pellets and whacked off the other guys that were in bronze armor. It's going right through their armor. Sometimes they say they're going 450, 500 feet per second and a 45 caliber bullet, uh, 45 ACP goes 850 feet per second. So you see the power of that mm -hmm. force. But then they came up with this thing called a trebuchet, which is really a sling on a stick. And so that thing's throwing sometimes uh, in, the, in the Byzantinian battles that they had, sometimes they're throwing eight, hundred pound stones. So sometimes God puts at our hand a small single shot right there to, to the eyes of Goliath. And sometimes he gives us an 800 pound stone. Sometimes the word of God is so powerful that it just like draws a hole right through the wall. And so we, we have got to be attuned to share only those things. That's why Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. We're, you go into a court, and I've been in court a number of times. You go into a court, and if you say, hey, uh, Tommy told me this, they're going to say, hearsay, hearsay, that's over with. You can't say what anybody told you. You have to say what you saw, mm -hmm. what you yourself saw with your own experience. And the word witness in the Greek is the word martyr. And in reality, it's this. Only speak about what you're willing to die for. Only speak about what means enough to you to lay your life down for. And that's that's the reality of what will change this world. All the theoretical, uh, interesting things that we kind of banter around with and all that kind of stuff, most of it is just fluff. But when we want to change the heart of the culture, because Jesus' goal 
in the scripture is to convert the nations. And we kind of lose sight of that by saying, well, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't force righteousness on people. All these kind of philosophies, that's nonsense. God wants to convert the nations. His desire is to convert the nations. And the reason he wants to convert the nations is because as soon as you've converted the nation, you've, you've gotten the home in order. And you're able to create the righteous seed out of every generation. So you don't have to start off at ground zero with each generation. That's what tearing the fathers out of a home does, is it makes it so each generation has to reinvent the wheel. So a, a, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, means a righteous man does not set his family up so that they have to reinvent the wheel on how to get through life. And most of the young guys that I work with that come over all the time, Every one of them's got a father issue. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of young girls because I just don't work with young girls. But the young guys, they all got father issues. Every single one of them. And every single one of them feels left out in the middle of someplace trying to reinvent how to be a man. They're how to, orphans. They're trying to figure themselves out, how to be something. And they never learned from their fathers. Their fathers never taught them this is what you do. In fact, many of them had such bad examples that they're trying to rebel away from what they saw to try to get to God. You know, and so so the difference being we have the teaching of the word of God that's in our mouth that when we speak it it creates faith. The scripture says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We don't wait for faith to be in somebody to speak the word of God to them. We speak and the speaking itself creates the faith inside of them that they need to come into salvation. And then we teach them the word of God that we've been taught. We make disciples of them. And that's what converts the nation, one individual at a time, one single individual. And, and I, I really enjoy the, the people that laid down their life in a crisis situation. I was reading something by Marcus Aurelius, a letter he wrote back uh, to Rome, not knowing what to do with this number of soldiers in his army that were Christians, because they had already set up this thing. If you find them, you kill them. Don't go looking for them. But if you find them, we want them dead. So they had a drought. And uh, they were having a problem in the Germanic Wars. Marcus Aurelius is up there. And they didn't know what to do. They had a drought. They're starving. And this group of Christians got together and said, okay, we're going to expose ourselves as Christians, Roman soldiers. And they said, and we're going to pray that it rains. And so sure enough, there was the miracle of rain. It actually rained. <laughs> so Marcus Aurelius said, okay, now I'm stuck. You know, these guys just saved us by their prayer and exposing themselves as Christians. Now the law says I got to do something. So he's writing back to Rome and said, how do I handle this? Because I don't want to kill them for what they did to save the legion. <laughs> and you see this same type of thing over and over again, like with Polycarp at the end of his life, when he was standing in front of Caesar and Caesar said, look, I'll let you live if you'll just deny it. And he said, how can I deny this 70 years of what I've had? And he was like 87, I think at the time. He said, how can I deny this 70 years? It reminded me of what happened with my wife where she just very clearly said, I can't speak to him that way. Mm -hmm. Even if it meant living another year. And there was nothing she wanted more than to live my youngest son, three years old, five and six year old. I had very young children and there was nothing she wanted in her life more than to see those children grow up. Nothing. And yet she said to herself, 
how can I speak to Jesus that way when Jesus did what he did in my life? I can't do it. And that's, that's what we need to speak on and live on is what Jesus has done in our lives because that's our sure foundation. People are looking to the church trying to say, what's real? What is it real? And, and sometimes we try to overstate things by not just telling the basic simplicity. Jesus Christ, what he's done in our life. That's all they need to hear. So what he did in us, whether they accept it as real or not, is going to be up to them. But if we speak plainly the truth, as clearly and plainly as we can, of our own personal experience, and that's all God has asked us to testify to, not what happened with anybody else, not what happens anywhere else, but what he's done in us, there will be the change. That's our teaching sown personally. That's the one we each have in our sling, is the testimony of the teaching of what Jesus has taught us. You know, you mentioned about what moves you and what moves people. And I think the day has come, the hour has come, that close, where the next great move of God, mm -hmm. which I really believe is impending, very is imminent, is going to happen on in our country and on the earth. And I really believe we're going to witness it and see it by the effect it has on children. And not just children coming to the Lord, but more the justice of freeing children up from uh, child mm -hmm. human trafficking and child trafficking and um, the demonic uh, processes that are way back in biblical times, you didn't think would exist today, but are existing today that I'm learning more or as God's exposing it more to um, uh, these uh, satanic ritual abuse and the sacrifices of children and pedophilia. I mean, the children are being abused in horrific ways and by hundreds of thousands and even into millions. And that's what's basically blowing beans up to God, not God's nostrils. <laughs> and it's reached the point where enough is enough and he's going to explode in that area. And that's when we're going to see people dying for justice and also dying for being accountable for yes. the sins that they have committed. That, you know, it took me, a lot of people don't really understand what you're saying about the predatoriness that's going on. And it took me many years of hearing about it to actually really believe it myself. Mm -hmm. But I, most people don't believe it today. Yeah. But I can tell you one thing I do believe, and even though I do believe that, but one thing I can say that there's nobody that could deny the fact that the education system that we've now adopted is predatory to children to teach them darkness. And, and beginning with the concept of evolution, and going all the way down the line to disassociate them with that relationship with God, which then makes them vulnerable. Mm -hmm. If they don't have that relationship with God, they become vulnerable to everything that Satan's trying to do to them to change them. That's why our streets are full of young people that are lost in the way that they're lost in an unusual way that you only see in a crisis time in a, in a culture. You know, I was listening to Dennis Prager the other day and his pet peeve the thing that upsets him is the teachers union mm -hmm. and how they have 
uh, totally warped the whole education system in America um, in a horrible way where even by the intent, and I, this was just shocking when he said this to me, he said they are teaching in America public school systems today that even in math, you can't get a true answer. Yeah, with the new kind of teaching, it's, it's a mix of very hard. With the new kind of teaching <laughs> that you can't get a true answer with math. Now, maybe I could buy that with sociology <laughs> or some other, one of the other you know, soft sciences. Yeah. But one of the beauties of being nice to call them soft. <laughs> yeah. But to actually promote a process, a, a um, teaching philosophy, which fundamentally says you cannot know truth and mm -hmm. that you can't even get a true answer mathematically, that is such a horrible lie. And it's, it's done with the intent of breaking down children's minds. It, it, absolutely, it absolutely goes to the point of trying to dissolve Christianized Western civilization because there's an order and a logic that God has that he established in the world through Christianity coming into Western civilization when it did and where it did in the world that it did. And there's a very specificity to clear thinking and mathematics is one of those things. And all across the world today, there's a movement to make, and, I, and I've read about a lot of it going on. There's a movement to say that it's actually a oppressive thing. It's like some kind of uh, privilege to be able to say that there's absolutes. It used to be they just argued with absolutes. I mean, that goes back to Socrates arguing, you know, where he said, oh, so you're saying, saying there's absolutely no absolutes, right? Mocking that idea. They used to be that people argued there were no absolutes and, and that was easily disproven. But now they've taken the individuals who believe there are absolutes and they're trying to disenfranchise them to the point of making them think that they're believing in absolutes for an evil reason instead of for a logical reason. And that's what's happening in the, in the whole deconstruction of education as we know it, that everything's becoming no substance that you can point to and say, absolutely, this is true. Absolutely, it's just that's why they changed the definition of the scientific method of being the repeatable, observable, and measurable. Now it just says anything you study is now science. Instead of being the science being defined as studying the, the repeatable, observable, and measurable data. Thus, you can look at it and say, evolution doesn't fit as a science. It's a theory. Now they say anything you study is a science. So that means ESP is a science. That means anything is a science. And and what's happening? The science, and if you don't agree with that, then it's because your Western uh, your Western mind has twisted you to think that any other culture that thinks anything different is wrong. Our society has come to the point where we're teaching that science, the only science that's true is science that fits the narrative. Yeah, that's exactly true. Right? They want to make the narrative true, and the narrative, by almost by definition, is false. So anything that disagrees with the narrative they don't yeah. want to talk about or want to bring it up. And you can't even have an open, honest discussion, intellectually honest discussion about any thought or idea. Without people getting enraged. They get enraged. And, and this is where it comes back down to the fathers. We now have school systems that are basically, you have guys now that come out of, out of a, a fatherless home 
They go into a school controlled basically by feminist teachers, what the teachers unions are. And they never, ever in their entire educational experience ever confront any of these ideas that are being shoved down and constantly. And many of these things are these iffy ideas that we're talking about that are designed, purposely designed, to deconstruct Western civilization because Marx taught that Western civilization was the number one objective that had to be deconstructed in order to get what he wanted. And it had to start in the home. It had to start. We need the restoration of fathers because when the fatherhood is taught in the home, when you have a father who's educating his children, the scripture says, train up the child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Every child needs his mother and his father. And, and we've decided as a culture, the entire West has decided as a culture that fathers are irrelevant and we're paying for the fruit of it. We got thousands of young people that are down on the streets, tearing the society down in our own nation over these things because of what they've been taught. I was just also reading a book earlier this week a book I had to remember years, revisited again by Jack Frost. And the title of the book was Embracing the Father's Heart. Hmm. And uh, it discusses his journey with being into a works and performance mentality until God brought him to the end of that and then taught him more about how his heart was and how, how um, uh, deceptive and all his other thoughts were about himself, about... Uh, his life and how he received love from other people through performance and thought he was getting love from God that way. Very similar from a different angle, but from a different uh, perception about uh, Brennan Manning's book, actually, mm -hmm. from a different direction. But the, the bottom line of our podcast and the bottom line of these Papa Tom's Tales books for children is to connect the heart of the person to God, their father. You can't be a father unless you have the father's heart. You can't be a good father. You can't be a, a good, true father without the father's heart. There's only one way you can get the father's heart. That is to connect with him and allow him to teach you right, and show you his heart. We have to become like Moses in that sense because the children of Israel, it says in Scripture, knew God's acts but Moses knew his ways. Yep. We have to understand the ways of God. The ways of God that Moses knew, Moses knew God's heart. We, even though we live in New Testament times, which is even easier in one sense, mm -hmm. because we have the Holy Spirit, we have to connect with the heart of God, the Father. So I want to uh, encourage you to continue to listen to our podcast. They're really thriving all around the world, actually. I found out the other day there are 115 countries and uh, we're on schedule to have over 40,000 downloads in the month of February. So we really appreciate you passing on these podcasts to the extent that you enjoy them yourselves. And we're certainly enjoying doing them. <laughs> and to go to uh, papatomstales.com to find my blogs and uh, a copy of my book to the extent that you want to be a giver. It's, it's mm -hmm. not for the people listening to the podcast to read. It's the, for the purpose of listening to the podcast to give a gift. Is yeah. a gift to a child. Exactly. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. We look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Bye.